I'm Helen Marshall, and this is the Diary of a CLO. I hope no one's listening, but if you are, definitely share it. In this conversation, I'm joined by Danny Seals, an expert in all things people experience. We dig into what drew him into this space and why enabling heads of people or people leaders is his forte. Danny has loads to offer, from his new consultancy Knots, a practical book, and his newsletter, which brings it all together. We also dig into why listening to your employees is so important and how you can create moments of opportunities in your business. Enjoy. Hey, Danny, and welcome to Diary of a CLO. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I've got a bit of man flu, but other than that, I'm all good. I'm so all you're good. absolutely fine, in other words. I mean, yeah, it's a made-up term, right? But <laughs> honestly, end of the world. I'm really looking forward to our chat today, just because I know that you and I are on the same page a lot of the time in terms of what good looks like for employee experience and those kind of broader things that surround it. So I guess for those who don't know you, can you give me a bit of a an intro into you and, and who you are and, and what you do? Yeah, I mean... I start back when I was three. No, um, so I guess let's go all the way back. So at 20, yeah, about 27, left uni, final year in uni. At the same time, I was diagnosed with dyslexia dyspraxia, which made the whole kind of situation of me job hunting an absolute nightmare, proper challenge. When I looked around, everyone had their life sorted. We had the goals, we was hitting the 30s, we had everything kind of set up. And it was all giving me like unsolicited advice on how to be an adult and how to kind of, yeah, be a real man. So at that point, didn't know what I wanted to do. Interviewed at lots and lots of other companies and kind of, yeah, just no company I ever kind of worked with or, well, who I went for an interview with actually understood this idea of people experience. Like, what does it mean? Then one day I interviewed at a large telecoms, beginning with O and ended in two. And um, I found this company generally cared about its people, right? I went in. It was interesting from day one. People was interviewing. It was really human centric. I was like, oh, okay, this is a company what gets its people. It also identified how many other companies don't get it. So at this point, I'm kind of finding, oh, this is where I think I want to be. Met a guy called Sakib, who is in my book. You'll speak about him at some point, I imagine. And he understood this idea of people experience, what it actually means and how important it is for me. Why am I telling you all this? Well, I guess over the next 13 years, I transitioned from various roles. Went from leadership, employee experience, employee listening, L&D, then back to employee experience and people experience. Joined a startup, founded a startup, watched it fail, launched a successful podcast, newsletter, offered a book, became a director of a cool consultancy, which was kind of looking at how we do people experience design and bring in design thinking and experience design. Works for one of the best innovation companies in the world as an innovation manager, set up Not, which is that kind of people experience innovation kind of agency now. And I guess currently I am helping legal and general with employee experience and innovation. So yeah, that's my work bit. I guess in all that, had a massive, massive moments of joy, happiness, meeting lots and lots of people, and then had some really dark moments of burnout, depression, where actually I nearly drove my car off a bridge. So yeah, that's that's my journey. That's me. So hopefully everyone knows who I am now. Lots to dig into there. Like the, the amount of stuff that, you, that you're doing in terms of, well, your new venture into not writing a book. Obviously, I'd love to dig into that and like the challenges and the, the opportunities that's brought you. Or that you know that you've come up against while you're writing that but something you said there and, and covering all those elements of uh, people experience and like what that what good looks like was employee listening 
So I'd just like to start off there because I think like that's something that I speak to a lot of people around how you're actually paying attention to what people want in businesses and, and organizations. So what does employee listening look like on a practical level? Why is it important? So good question. So I guess it depends. It's contextual, right? Like most companies are somewhere in their maturity and what that means kind of says how progressive they are. However, if you needle into most companies, if you ask them what employee listening is, usually it's a survey. We'll do a mid-year, end-of-year survey. Usually it's something like a glint or whatever. And then we'll go, cool, we're doing employee listening. You know, you're just asking people actually how they feel at work. And often most of these surveys are really static, right? So they'll do this whole big survey, this rah-rah, bang this drum. And then they'll get lots and lots of insight. In fact, it's not insight, it's just data points. Then they'll take months and months to kind of make sense of that. And then by the time they've made sense of what this data is, it's like life's moved on. Your people moved on. We live in a really dynamic world. So when I think about employee listening, it's ultimately immersion. It's active listening, right? There's a difference between listening and active listening. Right now, I think you listen to us right now, right? We're talking. I can't hear anything other than your voice. But if I quiet down, I can hear the buzz in the kind of the light. I've got a oh, dodgy light bulb. I've got instantly gone from listening to active listening. I'm actively listening to that buzz now. And for me, when you strip it right down, that's the difference. It's around being in the weeds with your people, identifying their pains, their gains, and the, the moments of opportunity where we can go, actually, this is how we create better experiences. And then needling in and kind of zooming in even more to find out what it is. The way I kind of see it is it's like a, a sleeve rolled up. You'll do a survey, maybe, depending on who you are. And then what you should really do then is get out into the shop floor, right? Focus groups, interviews. I did a piece of work a while back, which was exactly that. We did kind of this whole listening approach. And we said, right, okay, we think there's something here in these five or six different points. Let's get out and understand what that is. And we, we followed um, employees from six o'clock in the morning through to six o'clock at night. So we got to watch them get ready for work, get the kids ready for school. It sounds kind of creepy, Danny. Yeah, but I tell you what, it's the best thing in the world. Because what it does is it allows you to actually walk in the shoes of your person rather than just take what they said for granted. And actually, it was just, it was little things what we started to overcome. So for example, we, one of them was saying, I don't have time to get a coffee in the morning going to work. We did the immersion with him. And actually, they walked past six different coffee shops on their way to work. So you're like, well, why did you not stop there? Why do you go to work first? And it's all these little nuances, what you can identify when you do proper employee listening, which surveys just don't help with. Yeah, I like the point about surveys gathering data that ends up being historical and not really relevant in the moment. You need more of that kind of instantaneous behavior, like what is impacting people's behavior. How kind of scalable is that for an organization? Because I imagine it takes quite a lot of effort to be able to track, especially if you're a large organization. It does, it does. And this becomes a problem for most companies right like we value our people and what our people want to say and you go right okay we'll throw some resource into it you can see from that point of view why why people do surveys because it's cheaper easy scalable but actually you have to ask yourself at some point are we just doing the same thing over and over again and hoping that you know we can fix problems without doing anything with it but you're exactly right there's a big difference between data insights themes and actually what we want to uncover and i think for me when you think about them insights you've got innovative insights and you've got mundane insights so even if you think about like i don't know i always use onboarding because everyone's gone through that but a basic hygiene factor is people getting a laptop on day one okay that's a mundane insight it's an expectation it's a hygiene factor it's not really massively insightful at all but if you do really deep insights 
and you understand that actually based on what we're seeing and, and kind of needling into what we're finding, actually people like to come in on day one, but actually be only like half a day because it feels like it's overwhelming. It feels like, oh, I don't know how to get time in with these people or my boss or whatever. So there's a real big difference in kind of identifying what you already know versus what are actually truly innovative and allow you to create something quite special. And again, surveys just don't allow that for you. They just don't. And so as part of your role, then kind of enabling the teams that you work with within businesses to then kind of carry that on after you've gone, is that kind of the ultimate goal for you? Yeah, 100%. A lot of the work which I do is capability labs, it's kind of team tooling. So, you know, if you think about, we've talked about this loads of times, but what does the future of people experience? What does the future of L&D look like? I mean, we can talk about that all day long, but the reality of it is, is there's a capability gap, right? There's a what L&D or employee experience is now versus where it needs to be. And often we don't have the skill sets of sense making, audience insight, audience research, design thinking, all this good stuff. Yeah, the idea is ultimately enable the team through capability building, through team tooling to kind of give them what they need. So when you do leave, it can carry on. But again, it's time, it's resource. And ultimately, you need a progressive leader, chief people officer, whatever you want to call it, who understands the value of that. Because even like, you know, when you think about employee experience as a whole, or people experience or whatever you want to call it, nine times out of 10, when people talk about employee experience, they're talking about comms. I'm not talking about proper employee experience. What's the difference there? Mm, good question. When I think about employee experience, it's the full experience of an employee. When I talk about comms, it's usually messaging. It's awareness. It's, hey, we're doing an event over here. Or we're doing a pop-up shop. Or, oh, shit, your new kind of compliance stuff is out. And you need to go and do it. But for some reason, the people experience team hasn't found where it belongs because it's such a wide term to use. If you look at most teams, L&D, we know where L&D sits, whether that's right or wrong, we know where it sits. But employee experience is kind of this big, juicy solution to kind of create better experiences for people coming into work and working at home. But because it's so broad and vast, it's really hard to place it. It's a tricky one, but there's a big difference in the two, definitely. And so you don't think that L&D are part of people experience? Mm, here we go. I think everyone's part of people experience one way or another, right? Like it reminds me when I was at UNEF, we used to do this term where, so I did crime scene investigation. And when two cars bump into each other, part of A rubs off on B, part of B rubs off on A. That's how you track who hit who. So when we talk about people experience, of course we do, because there's collision spaces. People bump into each other all the time. Of course, it's part of that people experience. But when we talk about joining it, everyone likes to fit in a box. L&D is L&D problems. People experience is people problems. And there's an interesting thing what I'm observing at the moment, which is we've seen it before, right? I've come from L&D. People jump on bandwagons really quick. Oh, I do e-learning. Now I'm an, an experienced designer. No, you're not. Like, and I think what we're seeing now is, and it's a good problem. It's a good problem because I think since 2014, 15, I've been banging this drum about L&D need to be just the ultimate problem solving team. So it's good to see it, but we've just got to be careful that, you know, all of a sudden overnight, the L&D team doesn't become the people experience team because often, like going back to the original question, the depth, the capability, the way in order to design them is just a bit earlier and in their stage of development. So yeah. If people experience, therefore, have those kind of touch points across all areas of a business at the moment, that is kind of a bit of a, a holy grail in my eyes for L&D to have that same communication across a business and be understanding what is affecting departments company wide. 
which I still think is a bit of a leap for some L&D teams specifically. So in my mind, if L&D want to get there to be that kind of touch point to understand what those challenges are, there is a huge kind of people focused element on that. But yes, it's more from a training need, a learning need, like what do people need in the moment rather than a kind of practical behavioral what's going on in your daily role as an individual and how do we create that perfect experience for you, which obviously much more kind of people experience focused. But I really do see a shift towards that or maybe back towards, I don't know whether we have, we've got away from it, that people experience part of what learning is and where it fits within an organisation. So I don't know whether that is me jumping on a bandwagon because I'm definitely seeing more people talk about that. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, people who work in learning and development are, are people focused and they should be people focused. But maybe not everyone is is where the challenge comes from, potentially. I guess it, it goes back to how did you end up in learning development, right? Like if you end up in learning development because you like to teach or do learning stuff, mm. no, you're probably not people. If you end up there by pure coincidence, like because at the time when you were doing your whole kind of career and understand where you wanted to go, you're like, this feels like it does some of the nice things what I like to do, then maybe. But... If I think about L&D and people experience, when you think about, so I like to say spies, right? This is how I remember it. Your employee experience is a collection of kind of services, products, interactions, and experiences, right? Like that's it. The learning development is a product of the wide employee experience. It's not the employee experience. It's not the people experience. It's just a product of it. And they could be awesome at it, right? They could be completely progressive and be really groundbreaking in how they approach things. But again, it depends on where you are in the business and your maturity of that. And I think you see it all the time with organizations. They go, they centralize and then they disperse and then they centralize. And I think that's what we're seeing right now is like a lot of functions in the business are kind of having a bit of a identity crisis. We're like, what does L&D mean? What does people experience mean? What does this mean? What does HR even mean at this point? And I think that's what it is. And I think usually in, in situations where people can't identify as X, they'll go quick, what else can I be? Which is nice because there's an element of actual kind of constant growth development and wanting to try new things anyway, which every personality should have, right? As you're in the wrong job. You'd hope so. Yeah. You'd yeah. Hope so. You've mentioned a couple of things now that I think probably tie into the stuff that you're doing in your book and obviously your work that you're, you're doing with not. That is moments, opportunities and spies. Mm -hmm. Can you explain a little bit more about your book? Why you started writing it? Where you are with it? What's happening? You know? Yeah. Add some context. Yeah. So you've been one of my top secret beta readers. So if there's any gaps, Your please do. Out let me now, Danny. God damn. <laughs> so why did I create a book? So I guess the reason why I created a book is, you know, if you think about people ops, chief people officers, head of L and D, they've got a huge challenge on the hand. In fact, they've got loads of challenges on the hand, especially given the fact of the landscape in which you're working is always changing. You know, if you think about it, you've got stagnant, just a, a really bad employee experience as a whole. You've got outdated people processes you've got the struggle of kind of retaining talent like all your talent's probably going we're probably going somewhere where it's more progressive and does culture add rather than culture fit on top of all that you've got kind of wasting resource doing more for less there's loads of stuff going on and let, let's be honest it's not the easiest job in the world being ahead of as a director i mean you both know that so it's like okay how can i help as many people as possible and I've kind of, I've consulted with some massive companies. I've consulted with lots and lots of heads of and various different departments with my design approach to people experience. So it's like, right, okay, how, how do I overcome this? Do I, how do I help companies skill their team, help them kind of progress at this and help them move into a different way of working? So yeah, it was like, that was the question. 
before I wrote the book, I was like, how do I, how do I help as many people as possible in this progressive approach? Of course, there's all sorts of things I could do. There's come and get me in from a consultancy, but the book felt like the one which could be done at scale as fast as possible. So that was it. That was a question. And I guess based on that question led me to writing this book as a dyslexic and dyspraxic, which was an absolute adventure. But I guess in my mind, when I seen the book and when I started to think about it, I started seeing it less as a book, more of a movement, more than anything. It's more around actually how do we drive this revolution in people, ops, L&D, culture, whatever, and tailor those who are ready to kind of lead into this new area, into this new way of doing it. That was my why, if that helps. I also love the fact that you've written the book in as an experience in itself. So the way that people will end up reading it will lead them on an experience. And I'm going to use the word journey. You probably hate it through what some of the opportunities are that they can bring into their organizations and ideas that they can kind of try out really quickly a lot of the time in a really practical way, but also ultimately ending up in a place where they have that better and fuller picture of what it is that they're trying to do and how they're going to do it. So I think that's one of the really great things when I was reading it that stands out for me is kind of different to other books that I've read that are just more kind of information dumps and kind of like someone saying this is this is what I got in my brain here you go mm. you're really trying to lead someone on on that journey yeah I remember kind of I had my board up on my wall and I was like right if I was to map this journey like what is it and I want people to go through it and, and come out with something like there's so many more books on theory and whatever else I'm like I want someone to get be able to get this book and use it straight away I don't want a book where it's like hey here's some abstract theory on x or y when I started to kind of map that book, it was kind of looking at, right, well, how do we bring in elements of human-centered design, service design, design thinking, and, and really bring that to life? I guess for me, that's why the book stands out. And I say stands out, it stands out for me because, of course, I've written it, so I'm going to say that. It's kind of heavily focused on collaboration, blends all the system thinking, design thinking, and all that good stuff. But ultimately, it's a guide what you can just give to someone and go, right, apply this onto your existing strategy, see what it is you... Or maybe it's not even that. Maybe it's a fact of we need to create a new, I don't know, internal reward system, whatever, whatever that looks like. Try this, work to this approach. You'll come out with something which is quite different. It'll be quite progressive. But I guarantee you, you're not going to get the same old same. I wanted it to be really tangible with real world examples like you mentioned, but actually allow people to kind of go through that whole thing of sense making. What's the problem for the people? What's the service problem? What's the system problem? Move all the way through that to kind of make sure that actually you're not fixing something what isn't a problem. And then move into kind of incubation and go, actually, right, we know this is probably the thing what we're going after. How do we go from like really bold ideas to really distilling down and kind of coming up with some really solid concepts to quickly test really fast? Don't even know if I should say this, but, you know, if you're looking for a kind of a, a, a book that's going to be like a quite easy read where you can breeze through and forget, then this book probably isn't going to be your cup of tea. Like, there's a key call out from us to get go that this is a sleeve rolled up approach it's not a theory book yeah but i think it's great to give people that warning but also what i would say to counteract that as someone who has read it is that there's a lot of stuff in it that you could get overwhelmed and think there's, there's so much that i could be doing and maybe should be doing within my business but actually if you just kind of break it down into what am i focused on right now and how can i do this certain activity that's where it becomes really tangible and cool for me so yes there's that kind of wider bigger picture view that you're providing but actually it is really easy to understand if you think actually i can take this example and go away and do it and that's where i think it's really good i love that and i think yeah you're dead right if i think about the whole design approach right so you've got sense making human service system 
right? Like make sense of the actual problem. What is the real problem versus the perceived masking problem? But actually look at it through them three lenses, the service in which enables experiences, the system, i.e. the organizational, like how complicated is this org system and then the human tensions in it. You then move through kind of your whole incubation, which is dream, then distill down, and then you've got your experimentation. We then move on to experience and then we move on to production. You bang on, like at any point you can drop in to there. Yeah, I love that. I'm definitely going to steal that line. Oh, yeah. thank you. <laughs> Interestingly, you mentioned there, like the organizational tensions that might be evident in a business. So you are working with kind of heads of people or people that are hopefully quite forward thinking about people experience. Is there ever a challenge with what the broader organization feels that they should be doing and what the people team think they need for the business? And how do you kind of, I guess, help people through that friction, I suppose? 100%. 100%. Because everyone's got bias, right? Like, it's funny, there's, I won't name any names, but there's some people, some really progressive heads of who instantly challenge their own thinking. Like, there's people who get this solution seduction. This is the problem. This is what we go after. And then there's the opposite end of the scale, which is progressive heads of who go, I think this is a problem, but until I validated it, I need you to come in and help me validate if this is even a problem or what, what else is kind of building it underneath. And for me, that rub it's always an interesting one because you've often you bring a head of in or someone progressive and you plonk them into, depending on the business, a really old, big oil tanker in the sea. And you're like, right, do what you've done there, here. And you go, whoa, this is hard. There's a massive piece there around basic stakeholder, warming them up and keeping them informed. But the one thing what I've kind of always revert back to is if you think it's a guess, there's the opportunity to run an experiment to validate it really quick. Like if you find yourself in a moment, so let's pretend me and you are, I don't know, chief financial officer and chief people officer, whatever. And we're going toe to toe with around what we think and what we what you think versus what I think. There's the opportunity to run an experiment to validate it. One of us are going to be wrong, probably, but let's find some data first to prove which one is wrong. And I think it's that kind of creative conflict. Like it's both led with good intentions, right? We both want the best for the business, but at that moment in time, it's just an opinion. It's just opinions. And until we've got something to validate it, we're both either going to be massively wrong or massively right. And I think the goal is then is go out, validate it really quickly. It's just some dirty kind of scrappy, happy experiments. I think experiments are something that a lot of people struggle with sometimes because of that. I guess it's like a basic human need to want to do something that is either going to prove you right or is going to be all the answers all together in one go without being like oh we're just going to try this and see like the idea of an experimentation obviously is that we don't really know what's going to happen yeah but there's that fear of putting time and effort into something and then not kind of panning out the way you expected and that is a worry for people is that something that you've encountered yeah 100 percent. like experimentation is really it's it's a weird one right because most people they want it and so you tell them what it looks like and then they go whoa we can't do that here it feels a bit scrappy it feels a bit bit not us and it, it's tricky um, but there's ways to do it, right? Like, I think we often get kind of so confused with what an experiment is and what an experiment isn't that we end up just not doing it. Like experiments beat pilots day in, day out for a reason, because they're quick, they're fast, and you can get what you need to get really quick as long as you focus it in. But there's a couple of rules to what makes a good experiment, right? And the first rule, and I think I'm probably going to do a course on this at some point around, it'll probably just be an email course more than anything. The first thing for me is, Make the assumption, first and foremost, acknowledge that you're wrong, like you are wrong. And anything what you've got at that point is just you either having solution seduction or you're just massively biased. 
it always starts with that mindset first and foremost. Like I can give you all the team tooling in the world. I can tell you how to run experiments. I can give you some fight club rules around six rules of fight club to kind of make your experiments work. And I think I've shared some of them in, in my newsletter, which I'll, I'll give you a link for. But like ultimately, always mindset. It's always mindset. And yet it's the thing what always gets overlooked. There's never time to go over mindsets, behaviors, values, principles, anything like that. But it's always a thing what ends up falling over. You said something really interesting there about like everyone's going to have that bias when they're about to run an experiment. So do you think that bringing someone external in to run, to help someone run those experiments is always needed? So I know we spoke a little bit about the kind of upskilling teams to be able to run some of this stuff by themselves. But in this instance, if you're starting from a place where you're in your own bubble, you are going to have your biases, you're going to have your opinions. Do you need that external lens all the time? So as someone who's who offers that service, of course, I'm going to say yes, you do. But the answer is no, not really. But there is something around having a critical friend in the business who can stop you from having that bias first and foremost. So sometimes it's a case of when you do an audience insight, for example, you want an external person. You definitely do, because there's a difference between you have an interview with Bob from finance and you have an interview with Bob who doesn't work here, who has no allegiance to anyone and their goal is to prove a problem, not identify the people who's got it. So, you know, there's times like that where you want an external person in, 100%. With your experiments, no, just find a sparring partner. Find someone in the business who isn't close to your problem and ask them to play your critical friend. So you're going to run an experiment. Cool. Well, actually, I need you to play the critical friend and help me identify my blind spots. Everyone's got blind spots. I have blind spots. You have blind spots. Everyone's got them. But that's where you need someone who's not close and in the weeds of it to help you identify them. And sometimes it's just kind of creating that play, that critical friend. This is how I need you to show up. And this is what I'm kind of, I'm thinking, but, you know, help me identify the big massive booby traps what I haven't identified myself. But it has to be outside. It has to be outside the function what you're working and looking at the problem what you're looking at if you want to do it properly. You mentioned a little bit ago about the idea of creative conflict which I think is really interesting because it's kind of the same as um, being able to challenge effectively or dealing with having that kind of conflicting conversation element. How often does that crop up? Because it sounds like something that you're seeing in a very positive way. Like how do you establish the environment where people can think creatively, but in a way that probably contradicts someone else within the room? Yeah. And that comes down to kind of psychological safety. It definitely does. When I think about creative conflict, there's a massive piece around challenging idea you know, you're challenging the idea, you're not challenging the person. And sometimes we get so kind of attached to our idea. We go, it's part of me. This is me. And you're like, no, it's not. It's an idea. It's a fleeting thought where you just give it a bit more time than the others. And I think it's that kind of thing of challenging with good intention. We've all probably been on that call where you've got someone who's challenging for the sake of challenging because throughout school, they probably got some points for participation and they're probably saying the same thing. And it's a really circular conversation. If you can identify, I'm challenging the idea, not the person. And actually, I'm doing it with a good intention because ultimately, we're all trying to go in the same direction together. So yeah, I think it's it's that psychological safety and that's that kind of creating that safe space. Like if I think about some of the stuff, what we've done, whenever I do my workshops, whenever I do my workshops, whether I'm in four or eight week sprints or whatever, there's always a piece right at the start, which is how to show up, what we need from you. Actually, I need you to do this. I need you to do that. This is a mindset I need you in now. I'll need you in that other mindset later on. There's a whole big piece around priming and getting people ready for it. There's something in there around clarity of expectation as well, probably. Yeah, love that. Even if you think about it from, 
you know, we're culture hacks what we do. If you might, you, you'll have a team, team of 10 people, but how many times on that team do you ask them, how, how do you want to show up? How do you want me to show up right now? You probably don't, right? There's been times where I don't go, how do you want me to show up now? Do you want me to play with a critical friend? Do you want me to be the person where you've got a shoulder to cry and you can just bend out? And there's something around before getting into that dance, you just ask the question, right? Like, what do you need from me right now? What is it you need from me? How do you want me to be the best and give you the best of me right now? Simple question. It's also a really powerful question, but yet one that I don't think is asked enough. It's There's almost like a, a tendency to just deliver advice or and try and solutionize for someone when actually you're right in a certain situation, someone might just want to vent. They might not even want you to say anything. They just want that kind of space to do something. I think that it's really powerful to be able to ask people and have the foresight to think, how am I going to turn up to this conversation? in a way that is the best for this person, but also be kind of actively participating in a conversation about that as well. And it's true, right? Like, I'm sure you've been, I've been on both sides of this. I've been the person who needed someone else to show up differently. I've also been the person who's shown up <laughs> completely wrong. But yeah, there's lots of times where I'm like, right, I just need a creative sparring partner. I don't need someone to come in with this really distilled down mindset. This really logical. It's important, but I don't need that right now. And then you find yourself drained out of that conversation because you're like, I needed to be up here and you've just brought me down here. We'll get there. But I need to do this bit up here, this dance up here. It's, I think, yeah, there's times when I've shown up and gone, oh, I didn't give them what they needed. What they needed was this, and I should have just asked them. Good to have that self-reflection, though, and the ability to, I guess, to, in hindsight, think I could do this differently next time, which is really powerful as well. This is the kind of the ending question, but I think it's a pretty big one. What kind of problems are you seeing in various organisations or trends that you might be seeing in organisations you've worked with and what are the problems that you really want you to just think I want to solve that for you I, I know that like, this is a common problem I want to be there to help you I mean yeah this is a very big question so I think there's a few things right there's something around helping companies work better ways of working moving from a hey we're going to create a leadership program in 12 months to hey we're going to create a leadership program in eight weeks so there's that kind of helping businesses move from that typical approach to this really sprint approach to kind of ways of working when I think about when I was designing not I kind of came up with some kind of key principles one of them was like swift cycles, right? So for me, motivation thrives on kind of momentum. And often you get a project, you're working on a piece of work, a, a people product, and then it can't get the, motiv the momentum to get going. So then the mo motivation just falls off a cliff. There's something around swift cycles, four to 12 week sprints, work at pace and have something really quick. But one of them is probably that, helping people move to this kind of more agile sprint way. You know what, I'm going to go with my principles on this because they just kind of summarize everything. The other one is kind of innovative insights. We invest lots and lots of time to have someone go and do sense making and go, yeah, people want a laptop in day one. Well, no shit. Where's the innovation approach in that? Like, where's the moments of opportunity are even worse still? Where is your burning platforms what your people are screaming out for and you haven't identified it because you're too busy looking at getting a laptop in the rounds on day one? Makes no sense. There's something around moving from mundane insights into really innovative insights and being able to create them moments of opportunity and designing them. Scrappy Happy is a big one for me as well. I'm not down to create PowerPoints after PowerPoints after PowerPoints. What's the point when in the time it takes to create a PowerPoint, I can get a, a prototype in your hands. I can let you quickly see how it's going to look and feel and get real-time insight really quick. Yet we can spend hours upon hours upon hours creating PowerPoints and Excel sheets and all this other stuff, which probably nobody's going to read. They ain't got time to read because life is busy. Busy is life. They're not going to do that. So there's something around kind of helping people move to that really lean and mean approach. Forgetting about the bells and whistles of it, that can come later. But actually getting something in the runs really quick. And then the last one's probably team tooling, right? Going back to that kind of whole thing of, if I'm going to come and help 
a company with it be it, I don't know, designing an EVP. So I designed an EVP recently for a massive company. I can't say who because I've signed the biggest NDA I've ever seen in my life. But yeah, a lot of that is a team tool. And so that when I disappear, the teams can continue progressing on with the sprint. They've got the capabilities, they've got the mindsets, they've got the tooling in order to progress at that. I don't think there's enough is done there. I think often we go in, do a piece of work, but we don't actually create a place where we can disappear. That development, that capability and skills continue. So I guess bearing, there's a whole piece around actually helping people design, use experience design better. No, it's a term, but depending on who you ask, it means very different things. And obviously there's a whole three or four different levels to designing good experiences. So much, so much. I mean, there's a lot already in what you've just said there. So then and I'm just going to say it back to you just so I make sure I'm really clear in what you said. It's that you need, you want teams to be more agile in the way that they approach whatever it is that they're working on to make sure they're maximizing their time. You want them to be able to innovate and think about innovation more effectively than they are doing now. With that comes this idea of experimentation and creating the spaces to, to run experiments quite quickly, scrappy, scrappy happy, I think you said, and then upskilling. So being able to leave them with the right tools and capabilities, no matter whether that's just kind of design thinking more broadly or actually, you know, actually the practical doing of the thing. Is that a good summary? That's a brilliant summary. I think there's something around that word of innovation though, right? Which I think a lot of companies are scared of it because it's like, oh, innovation means this big, super sexy thing. I'm like, no, it doesn't. Innovation could just be a case of actually, what does your EVP look like? What does your, how you attract and entice new people look like? So yeah, I mean, when I think about it, if I think about my offering, there's, there's very clear labs and sprints. That's how I operate. And there's, and yeah, I can send you the link or whatever, but simple things like sense making, go in, immerse yourself in the world of your people like there's something around doing that right if you can if you it's that whole thing of i'd sharpen my axe before i cut the tree down if you can spend more time doing sense making you're going to narrow down actually what is a people problem like what is attention there's lots of effort i think and resource wasted and invested in the wrong thing because they haven't clearly identified the problem it's beautiful somewhere that is a big problem in a lot of areas it's a, it's a big problem not being able to identify the problem in the first place but yeah I think I think a lot of people will resonate with that but also recognizing themselves actually maybe they need to get more effective at being able to do that as well yeah 100% honestly I could talk about another hour on this it's massive and I think when we talk right going back full circle we talked around what was people experience look like if L&D want to become the people experience team rightfully or wrongfully then they need upskilling they need to be able to do audience insight they need to be able to do design thinking, experience design. They need to know service design. All this cool stuff they need in order to get there. But I tell you what, if you nail that, they will be the most progressive team in most organizations. And finally, last tip that you want to leave with someone. <laughs> Buy everything I've just sold. I think probably, yeah, like there's the newsletter, right? Sign up to a newsletter. I think a lot of what we've talked about today is about experimentation. It's about experience design, design thinking, and most of the stuff which I've talked about kind of just give away in the newsletter so yeah do that and then obviously if you're interested in this sounds like it's your bag buy the book really bad salesman aren't I? <laughs> i'm gonna buy the book danny there you go you'll have one sale cheers that's all it matters to me that's all it matters to me awesome thanks so much danny no thank you Alan. it's been great this podcast is powered by thrive we're a complete learning and skills platform creating modern learning solutions for modern businesses globally check us out